0: The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea
1: is to uh, innovate, or else why? Why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let know, it create itself, really. I know I do, and I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things.
0: love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the MJ Cast. I'm Jamin Bull, and on this episode, we're lucky enough to be speaking with one of Michael Jackson's most significant collaborators. Rob Hoffman is a producer, songwriter, and recording engineer who has collaborated with some of the most iconic individuals in popular music. From groundbreaking artists such as Michael and Janet Jackson, Christina Aguilera, Babyface, R. Kelly and P. Diddy, Rob has worked with the best. And not just the best musicians either, Rob has had the honour of working with fellow engineers and producers such as Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedean. But it was through his work at New York City's Hit Factory recording studios where he first met recording legend Bruce Swedean, who would go on to become Rob's longtime mentor. This relationship made possible a four year period as one of Michael Jackson's core team members, working on the History and Blood on the Dance Floor albums, the History World Tour, the ill fated HBO special, and Michael's seminal film, Ghosts. We're so lucky to have you here on the MJ cast, Rob. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) It's an absolute pleasure. Any time we get the opportunity to speak to somebody who knew Michael or worked with him, it's just such an honor and we love learning about Michael in the studio. So, yeah. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, before we kick things off, I know you've just got back from a trip overseas uh, to China. I've loved seeing your posts on social media. It looks like you had an amazing trip.
2: Yeah, I love it there. I try to visit as much as I possibly can.
0: Uh, so, oh, so you've been there before?
2: Yeah, I've been to China
0: probably 10, 10, 15 times. Oh, that's great. Wow. I've only been a few times, but my wife's actually Chinese. so I <laughs>
2: Oh, so you have no excuse. You have to go all the time.
0: <laughs> I know, right? I I try. I mean, we've been together now for about six years, and we've been back once every couple of years since then. Huh? But there's so many parts of China that I'm still yet to to explore um, yeah, it's massive. Huge. I mean, I've done a lot of the East Coast, but I would love to get over to like the Western provinces. Have you been over to like Xinjiang and places like that? Or
2: I haven't been to Xinjiang, but I've been to like Dali, all these places in Yunnan, like Lijiang and places like that. Um, but Xinjiang is definitely on the list. Yeah. Uh, I have a, I have a friend that has family there. So I kind of have an open invitation that I need to take advantage of.
0: Oh man, that's, that's definitely the sort of place I'm going to get to next.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh, that's great. There's so many different cultures and food and language and music. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, well, I live way out in the middle of nowhere in Australia in like a small country town as a uh, a school teacher so it's it's very rare for me to get get out anywhere um
2: that's a big change then
0: It is I usually go from like being working in like the school terms doing just spending time in a town of 10,000 people our biggest our nearest cities 3 hours away I'll go from oh, that wow. sort of environment straight into like Beijing or Shanghai for 4 weeks at a oh, time Oh <laughs> yeah that's
2: amazing <laughs> <laughs> That's totally amazing yeah that's incredible 10,000 people is like, uh, I, you know, that's a small Chinese village, so...
0: Exactly, and my I, my wife is actually from a tiny little village um, with probably no more than, I'd say, 10 houses in it. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, she comes from... You've probably heard of a city in the south of China called Xiamen um, in Fujian province. She comes yeah. from like a little tiny village called Dongbei, which is just, you know, a few hours out of that city. And sure. it's like going back in time, you know, like you yeah. go, you go oh, yeah. to this village and it's just like a rice, sort of like a rice farming village. Yep. Um, and I went, the first time I went there was probably about five years ago, six years ago. And when I walked in there to this village, the, it, it, people were just like walking up, crowding around. They were telling me I was the first white guy ever to go to this village ever. So oh, that's
2: amazing. <laughs> it was crazy. That's amazing. I try to find places like that whenever I travel, but especially when I travel to China. I, I really go out of my way to get away from the tourist areas and, you know, in many cases, try to be the first white guy ever to walk into <laughs> an area. So I, I know that experience and it, it's really amazing.
0: Oh, it's crazy. And it's just hard to actually physically get to them unless you speak Chinese. So, And, and yes. because I don't, like, I'm lucky enough to be able to travel with my wife. But do, do you speak yeah. the language or...?
2: I'm very poorly, but I can order food, find hotels, get to the airport, kind of all the the really basic life stuff you know and and like most westerners, you know my first uh my first few words are you know here's my phone number <laughs> you know How old am I? What will I not eat? Like really, all the basic conversational pieces. That's about the extent of my
0: Chinese. (laughs) Yeah, mine's pretty pretty terrible. I I remember once, I think the first time I met my mother-in-law, I accidentally called her the Chinese word for horse instead of uh, mother. Yes, (laughs) that
2: is very common. There are some some really really awful social uh, faux pas if you use just the wrong tone you know it can be the difference between a pencil and a female animal part or you know <laughs> things like that it's 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 really uh, you have to be careful
0: absolutely <laughs> Well, uh, Rob, thank you so much again for joining us today. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, and of course, at the MJ Cast, we love, love, love doing special episodes with people who knew Michael Jackson, who worked with him, and obviously, Michael's a big part of your life, having uh, worked in the studio with him for a long time. So it's it's a pleasure um, for us to be able to learn from you. I think. Thank you, thank you. So. So let's kick things off with with talking about your early life. One one thing we love to do when we're speaking to guests is is to kind of learn about the journey they came uh, or went along uh, in terms of their careers and their early life before before getting to sure. work with the King of Pop. So how about we kick mm-hmm. things off with you with you explaining what sort of childhood you had and and how big a factor music was in your adolescence?
2: Sure, um, I had a, like a. I don't know uh, how it is where uh, the school system you work in, but we had a great music program in my school. Um, We all were required to play recorder um, in the early grades, which I pretty sure I failed miserably at. Um, But then around the 10 years old, nine or 10 years old, uh, we had the opportunity to join the school band and learn an actual instrument. so, I originally wanted to play saxophone, but the band director decided I was too tall and he put me in the trombone section, which I was very upset with because there are no cool trombone players. Um, But I I did pretty well at that. Um, I kind of, it was, I guess I was a born trombone player, which you don't often hear people saying. So I did that for a few years and did really well. And uh, about maybe three or four Three years in, I decided I wanted to go back and actually learn how to play saxophone. And the band director made a deal with me that I could take saxophone lessons if I continued to play trombone. So pretty much every semester, I would begin to pick up another instrument. And he was okay with that as long as I never gave up anything before. So by the time I I went to high school, I played guitar, piano, piano. Uh, trombone all the various saxophones alto tenor and baritone also started to play drums when i played uh, in a jazz band when i was in high school i actually played drums and guitar switching back and forth so i i had a a very musical life um, in school my dad plays a really good blues piano but has never had a lesson he just kind of figured it out and uh, he's—they're Both my mom and dad are big music lovers, but they were never musicians. There's no other musicians in my family, really. Like I said, my dad just kind of picked it up from hanging out with musicians. But we, we listened to a lot of music. My mom is a massive Beatles fan. So I was inundated from a young age with uh, the Beatles catalog. My dad uh, was a big doo-wop, like 50s music fan. So a lot of that stuff was played. And, and actually, funny story, when I was about Eleven years old, I was learning to play guitar, and I was learning to play uh, "Sweet Home Alabama" by Leonard Skinner. (laughs) And I guess this insulted my father, so he walked in with the stack of Hendrix records and said, "Please, if you're going to learn to play guitar, please learn to play these records." (laughs) So I was quickly, uh, you know, educated on on Hendrix and uh, Clapton, Cream, stuff like that. So a pretty good musical influence. That it was fairly well rounded i would say
0: yeah it absolutely sounds like it and in terms of genres what was what were the sort of genres you were drawn to in music and the and the different uh, bands you enjoyed yourself you know apart from what my parents
2: listened to and kind of pummeled me with i was always stealing their records i i wore out my copy of the beatles sgt pepper's i just used to play it you know side by side just every side just back and forth and 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 killed it i used to just stack up uh, the Beach Boys and the Beatles records on the old record player and just let them you know, play through. You used to be able to stack them up, and then they would drop as each side played. Yeah. Um, I'd fall asleep listening to music like that every night. But I think as I kind of entered like the record-buying age, I was talking about this yesterday with a friend, the first three records that I remember buying were uh, The Cars, Shake It Up, uh, Journey Escape, and Ozzy Osbourne either blizzard of oz or diary of a madman i can't remember which one it was yeah, but it was yeah. one of those three which is really already a pretty eclectic you know super pop rock and the journey thing you know the car is just kind of a cool uh almost country rock in a way and then ozzy was like a left field heavy metal thing because that's when it started to break and i know the f- the, like the, the fourth record i bought would have been the van halen record with you really got me an eruption <laughs> on it so, it was kind of all over the place. Yeah.
0: So I guess it'd be fair to say that you had a really big sort of rock and roll influence. Oh, definitely.
2: In your younger years. Definitely. Yeah. yeah my first band, first real band, uh, we mainly played rock stuff. We played things like The Clash, a little bit of Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, um what else? Like Scorpions, Motley Crue. I mean, pretty, pretty standard, like 1983, 84, you know, rock yeah. music. And I was really, I also skateboarded and surfed, so I had a big punk influence. I listened to Suicidal Tendencies, Black Flag, Dead Kennedys. Not at all like Michael Jackson. I was
0: just thinking, like, <laughs> the, the music you would eventually go on to, to work on with Michael is, is so different. Um,
2: totally different. Really really bizarre, actually. <laughs> but
0: that's not to say Michael himself wasn't, uh, you know, a great rock and roll musician. No,
2: he loved rock music. He, he and I both loved Nine Inch Nails, so that, you know, eventually that all did come together. And I think during high school, it like, kind of, it began to switch as I became a better musician. Um, my taste definitely shifted. I went from like, pretty hard rock stuff like that. That was the era of guitar gods. Yeah. So I quickly found things like Ingwe Malmstein and Joe Satriani and all that kind of stuff. And then that actually moved into jazz. Uh, I think like uh, John McLaughlin, um, Al Miola, Mike Stern, all these like really serious jazz guys. So there was like a, right after that first three last year of high school, first three years of university, all I listened to was jazz. Yeah. I didn't hear pop music uh, I didn't know what was happening in the pop music world. I went to university and I, I was completely immersed in jazz. Probably the most pop thing I listened to was Pat Metheny. Yeah. Uh, cause he had a couple, you know, vocal songs in there. But yeah. that, I mean, I was, I was a jazz guy and, uh, the, the kind of this, the story that I think a lot of Michael Jackson fans have, have heard and really was influential was actually the dangerous, dangerous record. Yes. Uh, that was the first record that I heard really by chance. Jam was licensed to the NBA and I heard that record. uh, I heard that commercial basically and I said, oh, well, that's actually really interesting. Let me go buy this record. So Dangerous was the first pop record I'd bought in probably six years. And I, 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 of course, listened to Jam and then you know, checked out tracks like Dangerous, and I started looking at the credits. And simultaneously, kind of in my musical world, I had watched uh, a few of my friends graduate from university who were a 100 times better uh, musicians than I ever was or or could aspire to be. And none of them were really working. So, I was kind of looking at music and thinking, well, how, how would I actually make a living at this? If I was not going to be like a jazz guitar player and, and teaching guitar lessons or working at a school, Like, how, how do people do this? I didn't know anybody that was a professional musician or producer or engineer. So I started taking the recording studio classes, the engineering classes, and literally right about the same time figured out who Bruce Swedean was and saw that he was an engineer as well as a songwriter think on jam he has like drum programming credits and arrangement kind of really obviously a famous engineer but did all these other as well. pieces yeah. yeah utilized all kinds of talents that he had and i knew that that kind of set my career path in motion that's where i i began to change things and stopped taking like band classes in guitar instruction at university and concentrated more on Recording studio classes, arrangement classes, things that I could begin to build into a career path and would be useful skills outside of school.
0: So, what sort of degree did you did you actually um, do at university?
2: I actually have a degree in business uh, with a minor in music.
0: Right. <laughs> so, you took some music classes on the you know in addition to your business degree.
2: Yeah, I I, I decided that uh, being a full on getting a degree in music, I was going to have to take a lot of classes that I didn't feel would serve me, you know, Baroque instruments and, uh, you know, chorale writing and and all very cool skills. And and had I decided to become a film composer, really essential skills. And just by switching my degree, I was able to take the music classes that I wanted, the things that I knew would be essential skills and just get a degree in, in, you know, a minor in music. Um, And the business degree has helped me, you know, reading contracts and understanding the, the actual business side of things.
0: Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the
1: Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast.
0: So when you originally came to work in the recording industry, what was your sort of first big break into the industry and what were some of those earlier projects you worked on? Sure.
2: So I actually, after I graduated from university, I went to another, uh, one year program at a school called Full Sail, uh, University. And that was a like 13 or 14 month intensive, uh, engineering program. At the time, uh, recording studios all had huge consoles, SSLs and Neves. There was no Pro Tools. There was no home, really home recording computer systems the way we have now. So there was the only way to learn those pieces of gear was to go to a school. So I jumped into the program at Full Sail, spent a year doing that, and right out of there got a job at the Hit Factory in New York. I had applied to a bunch of recording studios in New York and uh, Hit Factory was the biggest and most successful and the place where most of my favorite artists passed through at some point. So that was, I I had to go there. There was really no question. And just like most uh, engineers I started, as what we called a runner or a general assistant. I or I think they call him a t-boy in, in the UK. And, uh, you know, I basically picked up people's lunch and coiled up microphone cables, cleaned the studio, did kind of all the usual basic stuff. But I was also kind of a nutcase. Like, I didn't really leave the studio that that much. I would, you know, we had an eight-hour shift and I always made sure I stayed until the sessions were done so I could help the other assistants and engineers, you know, coil mic cables. I would show up early so I could help set up sessions and set up microphones and watch what these guys were doing. And it was really, I think, because of that extra effort that I moved up uh, really quickly. And I, I always have to thank Brian Vibberts, who was kind of my senior. He was an assistant there. And he saw how much I was working. And he put in the good word with the bosses and said, you know, this guy, Rob, he he works really hard we should you know we should put him on sessions and uh the first really the first real session that i ever did was with brian they were doing the soundtrack for the movie wolf with ennio the the famous uh composer one of my favorite composers and it was a massive massive session a lot of music had to be recorded in a short amount of time And they had the studio had scheduled two assistants on there. Brian was one of them, and a guy named Carl Glanville, who's gone on to mix for U2 and and other hugely famous clients. Um, They had scheduled the two of them on there, and they really needed a third guy. So Brian and Carl kind of pulled me in, and I was quickly thrown into the session there, uh, doing tape up and moving microphones and, again, setting up and tearing down. I, I can't remember the exact size of the orchestra, but it was a massive full symphony orchestra, horns and strings, so probably 80 to 100 players. It was a huge, huge session with film playback, and uh, I got to do that for a couple weekends. And then um, also with Brian got to do an Aretha Franklin session wow. and stuff with uh, Al Jarreau and Kathleen Battle, and so Brian really pulled me into a lot of sessions, you know, before the bosses gave the word, he was really the guy that was like, hey, you know, come work on this. Like when you're not busy, you know, be in the studio and, and see how this is all done. And within a couple months of that, I think I started at the Hit Factory in October. Bruce came to New York sometime in January, February. I'd have to look and see what the exact dates were. So I'd only been there maybe three Months, three and a half months. Yeah. And they decided they, hit, they came to the Hit Factory, of course, because of the LA earthquake. Uh, they wanted to go over to the East Coast where they felt it was safer. And um, they needed two rooms. So when the bosses asked Brian to be on the recording session, they said, Who else, you know, what other assistant should we put in the room? And Brian recommended me. So really, my whole career changed. Quickly, you know, because of, of the faith that Brian had in me to do the job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just to explain to our listeners a little bit, because uh, a lot of our listeners like uh, love to learn about the logistics behind things like uh, recording studios and the, the different roles of people within those um, places. So could you explain to us the difference between a recording engineer and a record producer and how those two sort of roles work together for an artist?
2: Sure. The engineer is the guy that handles all the technical aspects of making a record. Uh, today, it's on Pro Tools in the computer, but back then it was operating the tape machine and you're moving microphones, EQing things, you know, all the, the actual physical aspects of record making. The producer is usually the guy that has the, the grand vision. Um, he helps, say, in the case of like Jam and Lewis or David Foster... Uh, they may or may not be actual musicians and players, but they kind of have an idea of how the arrangement's going to go, you know, how telling the musicians, like, you know, play it faster, play it slower, play it with more emotion, you know, play it in sometimes really esoteric terms, you know, can you play it so I feel more blue? (laughs) Um, Honestly, those are real instructions I've gotten. Um, But the, the producer sets the overall tone and mood of the recording sessions, and often the record, the engineer is much more technically oriented.
0: So, in, in the case of somebody who worked with Michael, for example, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, or uh, Rodney Jerkins, or any of those sort of guys, would they that they would come on the scene uh, with the grand vision of what the they wanted the record to sound like? Would they bring their own engineers, or did the studio provide engineers, or can sometimes it be both?
2: In some, in Michael's case it was a little bit of both. Um, well, Michael had his team of engineers and, and in the beginning, you know, they, Michael brought everybody on the session that he wanted, but as he brought other producers in, they might bring their own people. So a good example is Jem and Lewis. When they came to New York to work with Michael, Brad Sunberg knew I was a huge Jam and Lewis fan, so he made sure that I was in the room every time they were, and I would get things set up for them, like on the vocals for "Scream." Jimmy actually did sit in the room with a keyboard and and show Michael every note he wanted them to play, uh, or to sorry to sing. Um, but I had to handle again the engineering due to the more technical aspect, and that's with Jimmy. That stayed all the way through. Um, When he came out to LA, generally he would work with either me or Andrew Sheps, but towards the end of the project, um, as we got closer to mix time, uh, especially on Scream, where Janet's vocals had to have a a certain sound, Jimmy brought his own engineer out, Steve Hodge, who was another uh, massive hero of mine. Uh, He brought Steve out to uh, engineer and mix some of those songs along with Bruce, because they had a very specific way of mixing Janet's vocals and only Steve knew how to do that. So they brought their own engineer in to do those pieces.
0: Your involvement in history seems really broad, like from engineering to programming to even playing guitar on particular tracks. Can you give us a bit of insight into what each of these roles was like and uh, if Michael worked with you differently based on what your role was at any given time? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I don't think Michael always was aware of exactly like who he definitely there are there definitely times where he had very specific roles for people like I want Slash to play guitar on this specific song or I want Supercaro to play keyboards on this specific songs. There were other times in the project where he would just say like, This thing, this piece needs to get done. Can it be done by tomorrow morning? And that was more broad. And a lot of those duties would fall to uh Brad Buxer and Eddie Delena. And they would kind of parse that out. Um so for instance, Michael might be working on they don't care about us and say, I need new snare drum sounds. And Brad would say, Okay, I'll have a hundred of them for you by tomorrow. And Michael would leave, and then Brad would look at Andrew Sheps and I and say, hey, guys, I need you to stay here tonight and give it, give me 100 new snare drum sounds. And Andrew Sheps and I would stay up all night sampling, EQing, and programming. Um, or in the case of They Don't Care About Us, uh, the guitar part in the bridge had actually been played many times. Um, it had been played by Slash. It had been played by Trevor Rabin. Um, It had been played on a synthesizer, I believe Brad Buxer played it, and about halfway through the project, Michael realized that those weren't the notes he wanted exactly. Mm. So Brad said, it's okay, we'll fix it. Michael left for the day, and Eddie and Brad turned to me and said, there's a guitar in the lounge, go get it. (laughs) So I had to play that guitar part. Thankfully, Michael was not in the room, because I don't know that I would have been able to handle that stress. (laughs) So... Again, it wasn't that Michael said, Hey, Rob, come play guitar for me. It was, This needs to get done. You're the guy who's closest in the room that has the capability to do it. So, can you do it? And same with programming duties. Like, I'd be with, be with Jimmy Jam, and Jimmy would say, Okay, I'm going to, you know, I need a hi hat thing, you know, and he would play like one bar, and then I would like alter the sound, paste it through the song. Um, maybe do some extra filtering and programming around it to give it some feel or to give it some kind of crazy sound that I knew Michael was looking for. It was more, and I think most of us worked this way, where it was, if it was not a specific casting call that Michael was making, we all just tried to do whatever needed to get done to move the project forward. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so all of your, like out of all the time sort of working with Michael, was there a particular thing that surprised you about him as an artist? So say for example, like before working with him, uh, you know, his his uh, image in the media was one thing with people discussing him in, in certain ways. But when you actually got to work with him and meeting him in real life, did it surprise you what he was really like?
2: I think one of the, probably one of the things that made it great for me is, Though I appreciated Dangerous, and then of course you know went back and listened to uh, Thriller, and realized you know all the Toto guys were playing on it, realized the quality of musicians playing on the records. Mm. I was not a Michael Jackson fan. I I thought he was a great songwriter and a great musician. And again, it was all in hindsight that I realized how involved he was on his records. It it was not. When, when he walked in the room the first time, I was like, hey, how you doing? Like, in a sense, he was just another client. I was more nervous to meet Bruce Swedean than I was to meet Michael. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, like But that doesn't diminish Michael's effect on me or talent or role, you know, in the gr- broader scheme of music. But I, I guess mostly to say I didn't have any preconceptions. Mm. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't expect or know how he would be I I'd, I'd never seen an interview with him I'd never read an interview with him so I I when we when we met I had a very open heart and an open mind about who he would be and how he would be I had zero preconception so it was very easy for me to accept who he was how he acted and of course he had a you know a incredible personality and a heart of gold so there were it was just very easy in a sense I would say that the people around Michael, over the years, made it more difficult than Michael did. Does that make sense? It uh, absolutely does. You know, everybody tried to protect him so much that it made working sometimes difficult or stressful. But when Michael was there, it was actually never stressful. Everybody was so afraid of disappointing Michael that the stress was brought upon us by ourselves, not by Michael himself.
0: Wow. So pretty high pressure sort of environment.
2: Oh yeah, it was, it was, it was on. The pressure was, was huge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And especially with that album, because history has gone down really um, amongst fans as being one of his most important albums, especially thematically. Like if you, if you, It's really a statement, I guess, around everything he kind of dealt with in the early 90s, all the negative things he had to deal with. Like, he really really brings all of those emotions out on the record. You know, a lot of people talk about it as if it's some songs are angry songs. But for me, it's just raw emotion. And Michael being just putting himself totally out there like he hadn't really done before on a record.
2: Yeah, it's highly personal. There's no question of that.
0: Yeah. And did you get a sense of that when you were working on the record, that it was something special and different to what you'd done before?
2: Oh, yeah. And uh, the interesting thing, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm, but I'm not quite sure. You know, the history record was not originally going to be a double CD. When we were brought on to work, we were told that there would be two to four new songs, probably just two, and the rest would be the greatest hits. So originally it would have been a one CD, uh, 10 to 12 greatest hits, and then two to four new songs on top of that. That quickly, once Michael got to New York, that totally that plan was completely blown up because he's like, I got a lot to say, and we were you know immediately working on eight to twelve songs, which I think expanded you know into the neighborhood of thirty or forty songs, you know, within six months. So, you know, we in in a sense as as Michael fans now, we we all got really lucky that he had kind of that power and that drive to to write all these songs and put them out there because it that was not the original intention. So we got lucky.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And and just talk to me a little about the recording process. So obviously with history you've got, you know, a certain amount of com- totally complete songs that came out on the record and then you, you just mentioned that you worked on around 30 to 40. Now that's obviously a lot more than what's on the album itself. So yeah. at what at what stages of completion are those other, you know, 15 or so records sure
2: so mo i would say that the majority of songs michael would come in and uh he'd have an idea and he would sing this idea we we all every studio every everybody on the session had a little micro cassette recorder which i don't even know if they're made anymore and michael would sing his song idea into this micro cassette recorder. in many cases he'd sing you know the hi-hat Pattern. He'd be like, okay, it's it's basically going to be this temple, and then he might sing, you know, a, a quick like pattern, you know, boom. He beatbox something, and then he'd sing a melody, and he'd sing a bassline, and in some cases, that would be it. He'd he'd leave Brad Buxer and Eddie and Andrew and myself, and kind of be like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And we would have to interpret, uh, and, and so much of this fell to Brad's shoulders, uh, Brad Buxer, you know, Brad would have to sit there and interpret, you know, first he'd build a tempo map and figure out exactly the tempo and then, you know, listen to Michael's beatbox and say, okay, well that kick drum sounds very heavy. Let me use the 909 kick drum for that. And this snare drum sounds, you know, very light, Uh, In the beginning, that's probably, you know, this 808 snare drum, but then he gets heavier in the second bar. That probably, let me add a clap to it. And he would kind of interpret the beatbox and build a groove based on that and then figure out the bass and and other parts. And then other songs Michael would would sit in the room with right next to Brad's keyboard and they would actually literally uh, go through every sound, kick, snare, hi-hat, and Brad would build the groove with Michael sitting there. And then over time, you know, there might be other musicians called in to play their parts. But the essence of the majority of songs really started with Michael singing and Brad interpreting that. Um, Of course, that changes with R. Kelly and Jimmy Jam and David Foster um, and Renee Moore. um, But that the majority of songs, especially the personal ones, were all Michael singing parts.
0: Would it be fair to say that Stranger in Moscow would be a good representation of that process that you just spoke of? Yeah,
2: on? for sure. Stranger in Moscow, um, They Don't Care About Us. Um, gosh, any song that doesn't have a full co-writer on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't have the record in front of me. Sorry, I should have grabbed it. But, uh, that's okay. you know, the Dallas Austin song was uh, this time around. The basic groove guitar part was very fleshed out when Michael heard it. Uh, scream also very fleshed out production wise when michael heard it you are not alone was fairly simple in my mind um the first time we heard it it was really uh you know a groove an mpc uh drum machine kind of groove with roads and bass um you know and it was michael and Procaro that kind of took it into the the highly produced version that you hear um but yeah, I think Stranger or Moscow, and they don't care about us. So are probably two of the great examples where Michael literally sang every note, every beat, every, every piece you hear in that song came from Michael's head.
0: So in terms of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis coming on, because w- when you look at all of Michael's albums, there seems to be producers on each of them that create... Uh, a sound that the album might start and finish with that gives it kind of a tone like dangerous. You've ob- obviously got Teddy Riley, Rodney Jerkins for invincible Quincy Jones for the earlier um, three records. So was, were Jimmy jam and Terry Lewis bought in because Michael sort of just wanted to collaborate with those guys and to see where it went or was there a conscious decision? We need to give history a sound.
2: Um, I don't think it was... Well, Michael loved Rhythm Nation. He loved the programming. He loved the drum sounds on Rhythm Nation. That was that was for sure. But I think the initial impetus for bringing them in was actually the duet. He wanted to do something with Janet. Right. And with Janet, you know, of course, came Jam and Lewis. Uh, so he quickly realized, of course, that like, well, now that I have Jimmy in the room, <laughs> where else
0: can I... <laughs> where can we where go? Where else
2: can I put him... <laughs> Um, so really when we were in New York, I, th- I think it's fairly public knowledge that there were three songs that they originally played for Michael scream was one of them. The track that eventually became runaway for Janet was another one. And then there was a third track that I don't remember. Uh, I don't know if it ever came out anywhere else, but those were the two that I remembered. Um, and as soon as Michael heard scream and he heard the guitar as he was like, yep, that's the one. <laughs> That's, the one. <laughs> That's the one. But I do have a rough mix that I did of the Runaway track, uh, probably on a, a DAT, a digital audio tape somewhere, uh, up in uh, the Hit Factory Studio One. I love that song. So when it came out as uh, as Runaway, I was very <laughs> happy. But I, I don't think I, – I don't necessarily think that bringing in David Foster or Jam and Lewis or, or Dallas or even R. Kelly – was there for a sound as much as Michael had something to say, mm-hmm. and those guys were better or more equipped to help him say that than Michael was by himself or with us as the production team. In other words, those guys had a sound and a vision, uh, a production style that he thought was you know essential in relaying his story. You know, very few producers of that time could have produced Smile, you know, the way that David Foster did, could have produced yeah. Childhood the way that David Foster did. I mean, he's, again, another one of my huge heroes, you know, so they just, they they have a sound, they have a thing that they do. And, you know, it's amazing. Uh, Baby Face is, a, you know, another producer that was brought in. And, you know, his sound was almost overpowering, to you know, and that's why Michael eventually didn't use those tracks, because it was like... It sounds so much like Babyface. It doesn't give. It doesn't let my character come through. Whereas with David and Jimmy, it's still a Michael Jackson song, but you get their flavor on it.
0: I think Michael Michael recorded though with Babyface, didn't he? He did uh, "On the Line," I think is the name of the song. It came out as a, as a song on a Spike Lee film a little bit later.
2: Oh, I haven't heard that one. I'll have to dig it out and see if that's one of the ones we worked on. "Why" is is the big one that Three T eventually sang. That that was. I I, I think there's been some some talk in the medium and amongst fans or, or maybe even uh, I'm not sure where it came from, but there was some discussion that that was specifically written for three T, but we, we worked on that on this session. I hope I don't get in trouble <laughs> for saying that, but
0: no, that- that's okay. We spoke with, we've actually spoken with Taj Jackson as well about that. Um, uh-huh. And he, he said the same thing. So yeah,
2: it was, Kenny was great. Kenny was amazing. Kenny, uh, Kenny Edmonds, Babyface, came into the hit factory and, worked his butt off uh, to get these songs recorded. Um, And they, they sounded amazing. I mean, they were, you know, they were demos. That was the idea, but they were, they were record ready. I mean, they could have, they could be released as they are. You know, he did it, he recorded everything and, and with Bruce actually engineering every track. So it was, you know, impeccably and incredibly recorded. And I think, I think in the end that may have been the downfall. Is if they were more demo-y, if they were just really babyface sitting at a piano with a drum machine in the background, they might have had a better chance of being recorded. But they, <laughs> were, they were done so well that you know I'm, I'm sure it had to have been in Michael's head. Well, like what do I do with that? I can't change. Ta- I'm not gonna. You know I can't change that. That's it. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so we do as producers and songwriters we, we've we all had that experience uh, I've had that with Christina Aguilera where she's she, I've written a song with her and she sang the demo I can't then send that out to a singer who can't sing as well as her and, and have that person go like yeah I can I can do that like no <laughs> like sometimes we need to dumb it down um, or at least give keep the demo simple enough so that the artist can really hear their own voice in it and yes. I I think Babyface's demos were so good that Michael couldn't hear himself in it. Of course, he could have sung it as well or better, but he couldn't really hear his voice through the amazing production that Babyface had done.
0: (laughs) So has there been a song or songs that you worked on that didn't make the cut that Michael laid a vocal on? Are there any hidden gems that the world hasn't heard that you think maybe one day might come out?
2: Well, I think somehow, you know, there, there are tapes floating around with almost everything. Uh, I've really gone on record with the version of much too soon that we did. Uh, It's just acoustic guitar with Jeff Miranoff and Michael singing. They did, you know, three to five takes in the, uh, Michael in the control room sitting right next to me and Jeff, uh, in the, in the live room in the recording room of studio three in New York. And, uh, they were genius, they were absolutely genius, and the the version that got released later, I don't know what the bones of that are. it's there's so much production on it I can't tell um, if they started with what we recorded and added to it. I found out later that Michael had recorded that on several occasions, so I don't know you know if the version they've they've released is from an earlier version. To me, it kind of sounds like the Ben era.
0: Yeah, um, it does sound the vocal sounds a lot earlier than history. Yeah. Um, that not to say that he didn't you know, he you obviously saw him lay a vocal later um yeah. that wasn't yeah. used on that posthumous album, but
2: yeah. yeah. So I don't know I don't know where that where that version is and if they would ever release that version, but it really was um it was it was like a magical moment in the studio. Um mm. and it was it was early on, so there wasn't pressure. It was more like, hey, let's throw this down. And I think th- there's moments in the studio where a vocal is kind of non-pressured and easy and simple. And there's a magic to that that you don't quite capture when you're under the gun and you're trying to finish a record. So I'd, I'd love to hear that version put out. Um, I just I don't know that it'll ever happen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a little unpredictable what the uh, yeah, yeah, Michael Jackson estate decides to do. But
2: yeah. That's always, you know, my, my, my only complaint with the way things have been handled is always that I don't, uh, you know, Bruce doesn't often get the call to say, hey, what did Michael feel about this song, yeah. this song yeah. that should be released, or Quincy, you know, those guys. The, the people that were closest to Michael have, in a way, been boxed out of the current musical decisions. Yeah. and i'm not quite sure that's the best way to handle his music legacy or any i mean prince is going to have the same debacle you know anybody who who passes on with a library of music there's always the the weighing the battle of what do what do we give the fans to hear cuz everybody loves their music and what serves the the musical vision of the artist. You know, there are reasons Michael didn't release certain things and there are, there will be reasons that Prince didn't release certain things. So how do you how do you balance those? You know, that's, that's always a tough call. I'm glad I don't have to make that decision.
0: <laughs> I think from a fan's point of view, and I know a lot of fans feel this way, the one thing that really kind of frustrates us a little bit is the lack of authenticity in the music that's kind of put out. So I'll give you an example. Um, on the latest album that's come out, which is called Escape, um, a lot of the music that is on there, or pretty much all of it actually, on the especially on the first disc, is just uh, the original vocal that Michael laid down and then other producers that have been brought in, often unrelated, people that Michael never worked with, to put their own vision on these songs. And the songs are put out and sold as Michael Jackson material. But I think what the fans would probably rather hear is... Um, maybe if unreleased music is to come out that the original production team, the original engineers and producers that worked on it could be brought back into the studio to mix it, tighten it up, whatever. And then it's put out as authentically as possible.
2: Yeah. Um, I think that makes the most, I I agree. I think that makes the most sense. And then if you want to do this other type of record, call it, you know, escape uh, reinterpreted or the modern escape or history reinterpreted, whatever that's going to be. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great idea. And, you know, it gives the people again like Bruce, you know, who 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 isn't is really getting on in his years, you know, and isn't going to be the resource that the music needs for too much longer, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh to to take advantage of people like Bruce while they're still with us, uh is really important and, and to not take advantage of Bruce's wisdom and the relationship he had with Michael is, is a waste, you know, it's, it's just not serving the music. So I would like to see more of that moving forward.
0: Agreed. So take us back to the one song that you worked on with Michael that you're most proud of and why, why that song? Oh man, that's, it's so
1: hard.
2: Um, probably, you know, Stranger in Moscow to this day always gives me goosebumps. I, when I did the uh, the London seminar last fall, uh, there was a moment where they were showing videos, and I kind of snuck into the room and sat in the back row. And as soon as Stranger in Moscow came on, I just had tears in my eyes. I was very thankful that all the lights were off and nobody knew I was in there. That's that's the one song that it it, it just it still moves me to this day. And my work actually on it is is. Incidental, I mean, I really hands-on just recorded the background vocals with Michael. Mm. Um, I wasn't very hands-on with that song. So much of it was recorded early on. And uh, it was really one of the first songs that was closest to being finished. So that, it it just kills me. And, And every time I hear it, the first time I ever heard the track, actually, Michael had come to New York. At that point, we had two rooms at the Hit Factory and one room at Sony. And we would be working on sampling projects and things with Renee and Bruce over at the Hit Factory. And Michael was building the early parts of um, Stranger or Moscow over at Sony. And I would go over there a few times a day, you know, shuttling tapes back and forth and getting answers to questions and keyboards and just kind of all like general, you know, assistant kind of stuff. And every time I would walk in this room, the lights would be out. And that groove would be going and they'd be building the groove and working on the piano. So it's like, I, I, to hear the beginning of that song, I, I am immediately transported back to walking into that room at Sony and hearing that groove. And then of course, when the, the vocals kick in, you know, it, it immediately evokes the memory of Michael recording them up in uh, studio one, which is the big orchestra room in New York. And, uh, it, it just has a really, uh, potent memory a potent emotional memory to it mm-hmm. and i think it still holds up it doesn't it doesn't have um it do, it wasn't trying to have a sound it wasn't trying to be commercial um so it's still it doesn't to me it doesn't sound dated it just sounds like this amazing song that that lives on
0: couldn't agree more it's really representative i think of the work that michael and brad did together as collaborations. Yes. You you can hear Brad in it just just as much as Michael, you know, in my opinion, in the percussion. And it's just a a gorgeous, incredible song. And and I think it it is one of the most timeless Michael songs. It is one of the ones that represents him or his later work, I think, uh, so well. I know so many people that are casual Michael Jackson fans that say that Stranger in Moscow is one of their favourite MJ songs.
2: Oh, that's good. That's good to hear because it (laughs) definitely... It crosses boundaries. It, yeah. it doesn't even have a genre. It's it's not an R&B song. It's not a rock song. It's, it's, not, it's not even really a ballad or an uptempo. It literally, like, it just, it's just a great song.
0: Did you have much involvement with the song Money?
2: I did. I love that song. <laughs> because
0: Money, Money's not a song that I don't know a lot about. I'd like to learn a little bit about it because it's, I feel like it's one of those sleeper tracks on history. Like it's a song that doesn't get spoken about as much as some of the others, but it's a song that Michael, you know, according to the credits, had a lot of creative control over. Oh yeah. And the, the, the vocals, like the thing is with money, especially in the last third of it, those like multi-layered backing vocals. Yep. They, they are just so rich and it's the, probably the song money is probably the song I listen to most these days from the history album. Would you be able to talk a bit about that song?
2: Yeah, that, I, I agree. I think that is maybe, you know, apart from some of the classics like Billy Jean and stuff, like maybe one of Michael's modern masterpieces, okay. um, the vocal layering, the background arrangement is incredible. And he did that all on his own. There's no other co-production on that. That song is 100% Michael. Um, Started with uh, a loop and a bass line. The loops, uh, I put it out there before, but these loops are off a CD called Skip to My Loops. Anybody can get them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you've probably, it's it's, uh, Norman Cook, who is Fat Boy Slim. This was one of his... First, this is actually one of the most famous loop CDs that was ever put out. It was one of the first ones. I think I first heard it in 90, I want to say 92. A rap guy that I was working with had this CD and I was like, what is that? And it was just full of drum sounds and loops. And I actually made a cassette copy of it. <laughs> um, and I used to sample off that. And then when, you know, a year and a half later or so, uh, working with Michael all of a sudden I hear these loops and because it was the only loop CD I had, I knew like every sound on there. I can still, I'll be driving in my car and somebody will, you know, have, there'll be a new song on the radio. I'm like, I can hear like the snare drum, like, Oh, that's track 17, the third snare drum on it. It's cause I, I used this CD so much. So when they started working on this song, I immediately heard the loops and I'm like, Oh my God, this is skipped to my loops. And I was like, I, in a way I was kind of like, wow, Michael Jackson's going to use the same loops that anybody can buy, but it was also the way he layered them. And like, they were all laid out on a keyboard and he sat with Brad and he was like, okay, this loop goes here and that loop goes there. And then you're going to layer a snare drum on top of this. And the way Michael used like almost the same tools that everybody else had available to them and put it into this song. And it's the bones of this song is amazing because you don't hear it. You'll hear those sounds other places, but they still don't sound like Michael Jackson. Does that make sense? It's like it's almost like giving an expert chef your kitchen, and he cooks a meal out of your kitchen that you could never dream of, and you're like, (laughs) but that's my kitchen. It's my pots and pans and my spices, but it's still better than anything else I could have cooked. So in a sense, it was kind of a lesson. It was like, wow, Michael Jackson just took the most commercially available and probably the biggest selling sample CD of all time at that moment used those same sounds that everybody else is using and came up with a song that's 10 times better than anybody else ever did. <laughs> how did he do that? <laughs> um, so that was just kind of a good lesson. Like it's, it, it's not the spices, it's not the gear, it's not the, it's not the sounds that everybody else has, it's how he layered them and how he used them. And again, it, I would say that one in a sense is not timeless because it does hearken... To that era a bit because everybody else was using the same sample CD, but it does not sound contrived or copycat, and nobody else sounds like that who used those sounds. Um, and like I said, his his vocals just kill. Oh, on the song. It, it's it's absolutely brilliant.
0: You just feel so nourished by it. Like you, just when you think the song's over, there's like a whole other section of yes. you know Michael's vocal and it's just it's like it's so rich and so deep i love it I just yeah listen it's to lush it so much.
2: it's really lush, lush
0: that's the word <laughs> yeah
2: and there's still there's still the big mystery i I've, I've said this in other interviews and and honestly i haven't done the research and i can probably find out but you know there are four other guys you know doing little background parts not in the not in the lush singing background but in the in the verses yeah um that I don't know who they are. We, we had them in for one afternoon. They did these little pieces and then they were gone. And I'm like, who are those guys? Where did they go? And does anybody know that they're singing on that song? <laughs> um, so I, I do have to, re- I have to remember, I have to remind myself to kind of do some research and find out that, you know, who these guys are and did yeah. they get the credit? And because they, they really came in and they did those pieces. Again, it's, it's not the big lush backgrounds that we're all used to hearing in Money. It's the, the little pieces early on in the song. Yeah.
0: So, the song's become, like, lyrically and thematically, it's become really, I guess, very prophetic. It talks a lot about, you know, people taking advantage of Michael Jackson in a business sense, I guess, or just, you know, people's lust and greed for money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could argue that that eventually was his downfall, um, the people around him that lusted so much for money. Uh, putting him in a position where he needed to work so hard for it. Yeah, he could um, definitely
2: say that for sure.
0: Did he talk much? Like when when recording the songs, did he did did he talk much about the lyrics of that song? Not,
2: not often. You know, I I, I always uh, I always recommend that that people search out for Eddie Delena. Um, so much of when we would be in the studio. You know, it'd be me and, and Eddie Delaney and Brad Buxer and Michael and Andrew Shep's if he wasn't tasked with some other impossible project. And when it came vocal time, when it came time for Michael to actually sing, we would all clear out and it would just be Eddie and Michael. And so we didn't, the rest of us didn't have a lot of personal, like, in-depth conversations about where a lyric came from or what he was trying to say but I would suspect that Eddie would have, because really in a sense he was acting as Michael's co-producer. He was not just engineering the vocals, but, you know, Michael trusted him and asked his opinion, like, is that the vocal? Can I do this? Can I do that better? You know, I, so I'm guessing that Eddie has much more insight into the meaning of lyrics than probably anybody else on the record.
0: Mm. You've said that you'd only go, two to four hours of sleep each night for about 18 months. (laughs) Can you tell us about how you and other members of the team handled these sort of intense schedules and like what sort of toll did that take on you in your life? I I was
2: in pain most times. Um, uh, So I don't drink coffee. I still don't drink coffee. Um, But I did live on raspberry Snapple, uh, chocolate covered espresso beans And this vitamin, I believe it was called pure energy, and it was uh, ginseng and bee pollen. Um, That was my, um, how I stayed awake. Uh, And there were often times that when I would finally go home, I would fall asleep in the car. Um, I was commuting to and from New York. I would fall asleep on the train and miss my train stop. Um, There were times where I would go home shower, get new clothes and get back on the train and and kind of leave the house again for 3 to 5 days. It was rough. At some point we brought another assistant in named Tony Black to take over some of the nighttime duties. But there was so much to do that it didn't really relieve Brian or myself. Uh, so at that point maybe I switched to, you know, a more consistent 4 to 5 hours of sleep a night. There there was just always so much to do um there there just wasn't time, so uh we all were pretty shattered by the end of the record. I gained a ton of weight. I think I gained like twenty pounds over the over the the length of history, eighteen months or so. That was pretty painful. It took a while to lose that, but you just you kind of do it and you take little naps wherever you can, and you know you you prayed Michael'd be late so you could fall asleep <laughs> out for a half hour um or you know, we we did. There are funny stories where where Michael'd say like we'd work really hard one day, and Michael'd be like, "Okay, I'm going to leave early today. Like, you know, I'll see you guys tomorrow." Yeah, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. And then he'd walk out, and then tomorrow would come, and he wouldn't show up, and we might have an earlier night, and then the next day'd come, and he wouldn't show up. But we'd see on CNN that he had just landed in Budapest or something like that. <laughs> so we're <laughs> like, "Oh, okay." So his schedule was always changing, and he would he was in the studio constantly, of course, you know, as much as he could be and needed to be. but there there were breaks like that where he would kind of disappear for a few days to go off and handle other parts of his life, and our schedule would calm down a bit. Um, so we looked forward for those moments.
0: What was your biggest takeaway? From working with Michael and his team of engineers, how have you incorporated some of those experiences into, into the work you've since done after working with Michael?
2: Probably the, the single most important thing was that every, every part, every, every song, everything was precious. Like, I think mm. Michael went into every song and every record, you know, with, with the weight, in a sense, of Thriller. You know, it's like, how do I do better? How do I, you know, how, how, how do I do this amazingly? There was no, there was no sense of like trying to repeat himself. It all had to be new, hmm. um, but it had to be as good. So I've tried to approach every project that way. I often say to the artists that I work with, like, I, I actually approach every record is if I'm trying to remake Sergeant Peppers or a pet sounds like I want every record I make to be that good. And of course I've never gotten anywhere near as good as those records, but I at least start every project with that mentality. Like I want this to be amazing. Um, and I try not to forget that. And I really, I, I take that away from, you know, having worked with Michael and Quincy, I think they felt about that about every part Um, Not to the point of polishing. Michael was always very careful about like, let's not edit this to death. But just from the part of like, is this special? Does it say something? Does every note have meaning? Um, And if there's a mistake, does the mistake serve the message or Mm -hmm. does it take away from the message?
0: Well, I definitely think that work ethic and mentality shines through because, like I said, history is one of my favourite Michael Jackson albums ever, and I think it's a lot of fans' f- favourites. So, so yeah.
2: That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it worthwhile.
1: <laughs> Delighted to have with us one of America's youngest institutions, five of our very favourite people who, in fact, are doing us the honour of letting us celebrate with them their 10th anniversary in show business. A great welcome, gang, for the Jacksons.
3: (laughs) So if you remember these songs
1: I never can say goodbye Don't make the pain I never can say goodbye Even though the pain and heartaches are Sing to follow me wherever i go Though so i try and strike the my feet and they always sing the show then you try to sing you're leaving me and i always never sing no tell me why
3: Hi, this is Janneke, and you're listening to The MJ Cast. If you're after a leading magazine on all things Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, check out Jackson Source. Jackson Source publishes Jackson magazine annually, and it offers a full retrospect of the previous year, covering all the news, highlights, and events of the first and next generation of Jacksons in the form of articles, interviews, photos, categories, and exclusive contributions from Jackson family members. Jackson Magazine is now available and features articles about the message and Michael's music, the legacy of the Jackson Five, exclusive interviews with Tito, Jermaine, Tosh, Terrell, and TJ, as well as exclusive pictures of Tito, Jermaine, Jafar, and Your Majesty, and loads more. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JacksonSource. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Hi, this is Diana Walzack, sculptor of the Michael Jackson History statue, and you're listening to
0: the mJ cast: So you went on from working with uh, Michael on history to to doing some other projects with him as well so one of the first ones you you did uh, oh, I'm not sure quite sure if it was yeah it would have been after the recording sessions for history was the HBO special that eventually didn't didn't happen for yeah. um for health reasons um, around Michael Jackson. So what are some of the memorable moments you had around working on HBO with Michael? Sure.
2: You know, I I actually came to LA, um, Brad Sundberg and Bruce Fede and Renee Moore were kind of the ones that fought for me to come out to LA. And when I got here, Brad Sundberg actually said to me, he's like, look, I have you scheduled here for two weeks. If you can make yourself useful, uh, you'll stay, you know, as long as you're needed. But he's like, that's really up to you. So that's really where I started to, you know, kind of, you know, not now that I was not staff at the hit factor, I could kind of do more and, and be, try to be more useful and, and kind of jump in all the rooms and do all, you know, try to use whatever talents I had to, to be useful. But when the record ended, I really, you know, there was no, like Michael didn't say like, okay, I'll see you in August for the film. So I really had no, idea when the next time I was going to work was going to be. Yeah. Um, so I went to New York. I did a brief couple weeks working, uh, doing some sound design for a Broadway show. And luckily while I was in New York, Quincy decided to finish his record in New York. So Bruce gave me a call. We went back to the hit factory. I worked with Quincy there for about a month. Then Quincy decided to go back to LA. So similar story. We went back to LA to the same rooms we worked at with Michael um, Almost as soon as we finished working with Quincy, within maybe a week or two, Bruce and Renee called and said, hey, we're going back to New York um, to work on remixes and some of the unfinished songs from history. That's when we started working on Ghost and Blood on the Dance Floor. So we were there for maybe a month without Michael. And then Eddie, Brad Buxer, and Michael came back to New York and we started the HBO show process. That was about, I'm guessing September of that year. And that was really interesting for me because while I had done some tour prep for history, this was a whole new thing, really pulling up the songs that Michael wanted to do, sitting with the choreographers and dancers and you know, adding bars, editing the whole structure of the song, adding sound effects, Really, it was almost like scoring a film that was about to happen, but we were pre-scoring it. So that was a pretty intense, uh, I guess, three, three and a half months. Yeah. Uh, um, and we were back in the studio, studio three and four of the hit factory that we had been in for the history record. So that was
0: nice. So you were kind of working on alternate versions of the songs that were going to be presented in the HBO special. Yeah. Um, were you involved at all in the the version of Dangerous that would eventually be used a few years later? That sounds quite different to what was on the Dangerous album.
2: I don't know. I don't know what versions have been released. So that the the, yeah. the quintessential Dangerous version is the one that was, I guess, on the MTV show. Um, yeah, is that, that the, that's the one that there's one there's first. one
0: that's way different to that as well. There's one that came out like a few years later, and I think Lavelle Smith Jr., um, one of Michael's choreographers, has spoken about the song, the version of Dangerous they were prepping for the HBO special. Was that sort of different version that would oh. Michael would eventually use a few years later? For uh, I think the first time he used that version was in 1999 at a concert he did called Michael Jackson and Friends, I think in mm-hmm. Munich. Yeah, um. Yeah, so no, that's okay. I was just wondering if you if you Yeah, I'd have
2: to hear it. Um I yeah. don't remember I we we worked on Dangerous many, 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 many hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a sense using that original template and yes. building on that and trying to make it different. But I don't I if I heard it, it might trigger some memory, but I haven't honestly I haven't heard it since Nineteen, what is that? Fall of ninety-five. So <laughs> 95, it, yeah. that one has escaped my memory. <laughs> that's
0: that's totally fine. But I'll
2: look. But I'll see. I'll see if it triggers a memory. If that's what we were working
0: on. Did you see Michael perform any of those songs? Did you, did you watch him do that or was it just yeah. the recording?
2: I was, I was pretty much stuck in the studio. It yep. was Eddie Delena and myself and, um, Matt Carpenter who eventually went on the road with Michael kind of being the Pro Tools operator, computer operator guy. Um, yep. And we would kind of take turns editing and and Lavelle and Travis, am I, am I remembering yes. the name correctly? They would come yes. in and they'd be like, okay, we need eight more bars here. I need a big slam here. I need an explosion oh. here. You know, and they would kind of lay out really everything that needed to happen in the live show. Um, and then I I feel like the band was rehearsed. I could be totally wrong, but I feel like they were rehearsing not too far from the hit factory. They weren't actually rehearsing in the theater Um, early on so we would you know i would run over tapes and sounds and things like that over to the rehearsals and hear them jamming uh but i never saw any of the actual production rehearsals
0: yeah yeah it's that's one of the big mysteries of the mj world is how how complete was the show before it didn't happen
2: we were we were done musically as far as i i i I gotta i gotta rack my brain for a second but i feel like like we were Towards the end, I feel like we were pretty much hanging at like relaxing, you know, pretty well in the studio and just fielding last minute requests and little, you know, edits and bits like that. I feel like by the time Michael collapsed, we were on the musical side, on on the studio side, I should say the pre-production side, we were pretty well finished. I don't recall our time in the studio at the end, being stressed or feeling like we weren't going to make it. So at least from our point of view, yeah. um, we were fairly done. We were we were ready.
0: Now that's a project I wish could come out. These are the sort of things <laughs> I wish the estate and Sony would work on. Like for the HBO yeah. show, Michael's This Is It show, just taking all of the the musical elements of them, putting together a live show on CD with maybe his studio vocals over the top of all the... The lives, like, that'd be amazing.
2: Yeah, they, they all, everything we would have worked on, every, when we did tour prep, when we did HBO prep, when we worked on, you know, any of the videos or everything, everything would have been edited with Michael's uh, album vocal in there because the band would rehearse, obviously. W- you know, Michael didn't have to be at every band rehearsal. So the band, if they wanted to in rehearsal they could unmute Michael's vocal and hear where he came in, how he did things. Like there was always from, the, again, from the pre-production side, there was always a vocal in place. Yeah. So that Michael could, so that again, everybody knew the song form and where he was coming in and where he was singing. And it was always edited from the album Cake. Um So yes, theoretically, you could easily go into the HBO Pro Tools file, pull those up and mix it. And have, you know, essentially a finished record. You, you could probably do that.
0: Incredible. But
2: good luck <laughs> making that one happen from the political standpoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that might be tough.
0: Very true. Um, and how were you uh, involved very much with that uh, MTV 95 performance that you mentioned earlier? No, I feel like that was
2: done. I feel like I don't know where that came from because that was dangerous, right? Is that the...
0: No, that was 95 because he performed You Are Not Alone in it. Oh, he performed You Are Not Alone. I don't yeah.
2: remember. You know, I, I don't I, remember it.
0: It might have been Brian because I remember speaking to, I think I was speaking on Twitter to Brian once and we were uh-huh. talking about uh, in the Billy Jean performance, there's like a sample from, uh, I think it's from a dangerous record that's dropped into the Billie Jean beat. Oh. Um, yeah, and I remember talking to him about that. But I, I oh, just-
2: I'd have to take a look and see. I don't, yeah, that doesn't ring a bell. Because we would have been working on – we well, still would have been working with Michael. We would have been with Michael. Was that the, is that the same – that's not where he – that's not the same MTV thing where he walked out and kissed Lisa Marie, right?
0: No, that's exactly a it's, year later. It's a year so later. 94 was the, the infamous kiss and 95 kiss. was the uh, – the, uh, I think it, it was really his first proper TV performance for God. the history era. Do
2: you know um, the month? Do you know the month offhand? I wish
0: I wish I knew the months I don't. Sorry. I could probably look it up on Wikipedia, but H- had Scream been released? Scream had been released, because that okay, was one so of the songs he did on stage.
2: It's after June of ninety-five.
0: I'm actually on Wikipedia right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure okay. of it, yeah. I can tell you the date. Yeah. September seventh, ninety-five is when the, the show
2: So you, I would think we would have worked on that because we were at the hit factory at that moment. There's a, there's a chance we worked on that. And I, and it's, it was such a quick thing that it's not in my brain power at that point.
0: (laughs) Oh, you know what though? They might have. No, I don't.
2: I don't remember. I'd, I'd love to say I remember it, but I really don't.
0: <laughs> That's okay. Just uh, yeah, if you get a chance, check it out at some point because there's. Um, it might be one of those things that trigger your memory because sure. most of the most of the songs in that, like, there's the medley that comes first, and there's You Are Not Alone and Dangerous at the end. But in the middle of that is a Billy Jean performance, and it's really unique because it's got a sample from a Dangerous song, but it's like a percussive sort of drum sound. Or well, it's mm-hmm. almost like a beatbox that's taken and put on top of the Billie Jean beat. Oh. And it sounds fantastic.
2: You know, it could have, we could have been, we, we, if it's September of 95, we would have been working on HBO yeah. and there's a chance that that was edited, you know, at the studio and prepared there for him. But I don't recall yeah. it. Matt Carpenter might know he, he's yeah. another guy because he was doing a lot of the Pro Tools
0: work at that point. So then HBO happened, the History World Tour happened, and then one of my favourite Michael Jackson records came out, Blood on the Dance Floor, History in the Mix.
2: Really? That's one of your favourites? It's one of my
0: favourites. And the reason it's one of my favourites is because the, the the original songs on that album, the first five or so tracks, I think, are especially Morphine, Is It Scary and Ghosts, I feel are just some of Michael's most creative works like his most risky creative unique pieces of music mm-hmm. um like morphine especially like it's sure. just yeah. so different so different so how involved were you with that record and how did it come about
2: so we after doing um after doing the hbo show mid-december ish we all went back to la um, I started working a little bit more with Steve Picaro from you know having developed that relationship on history. And then within really a couple of weeks of of helping Steve build his studio and beginning to work on a TV show with him, Eddie started calling me like, Hey, it's starting to heat up again. <laughs> um and we started going to record one the LA studio that we worked on history in and pulling up mixes and working on different bits, um, which all eventually became the ghost film. And we worked on that for a little bit less than a year. Um, Is that right? Yeah. A little bit less than a year. And um, you know, is it scary ghost blood on the dance floor all and, and too bad kind of were circulating within that film in various remixes and incarnations. Yes. Um, And it was... We didn't really know... Obviously, we knew about the film. We were delivering mixes and everything to them. But we didn't know that that was going to evolve into Blood on the Dance Floor until the end of that year. Um, What's that, 96?
0: 97, maybe.
2: 96, 97? Yeah. Yeah, so... That really started to come about at the end. We had moved from record one over to record plant. Work that we had done on Is It Scary, Ghosts and Blood on the Dance Floor started to evolve into a more record shape versus the film shape. And really most of what you hear on "Like morphine was completed during the history sessions. There wasn't too much more that needed to be done apart from vocals and mixing on those. Those songs... You know, we were kind of pulled off the history record because we were under the pressure with Sony. You know, Sony was and, and Epic were kind of tired of the process. They were tired of spending the money. And we had had a meeting at the very end of history, maybe a month before we, we officially ended with all the producers and Bruce and Michael. And we had kind of made a, a hit list of the songs that could be done. And Morphine simply really hadn't been worked on since New York. So it just got taken off the list. But it had, pretty extensive work done to it in New York. So it was, it was close to being finished anyway. Obviously, blood on the dance floor was for the most part done during dangerous or, you know, at soon after dangerous. So, and same with, is it scary? Is it scary? Was if not completely finished, really close to being finished at the end of history. So, those those songs were it wasn't hard to finish them. You know, again, it was some some touch-ups, some edits, maybe some new vocals and a mix. So yeah. they came about really easy. And by the time they started mixing those, at that point it was, you know, really just Eddie and and Andrew a bit in the studio. So that's when I started moving on doing other projects. But the work that I had done on history is like I said, that's that's what's on those record, on that record
0: it's just uh yeah an incredible incredible album i think and especially like <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that um you and michael both love 9 inch nails yes and i don't know, i don't know whether it's just me but i hear 9 inch nails influence oh, on sure. some of that yeah, stuff like no, morphine like that industrial rock sound with funk yep. elements in there it's yeah
2: yeah no it's it's definitely in there um you know michael Every week would get uh, one, of the, one of the other engineers would put together kind of like a, a greatest hits like, of the music uh, of the week for Michael to listen to. He didn't, you know, he didn't go out and buy like a million CDs. He couldn't go to Tower Records like the rest of us. So this, this guy was tasked with putting together you know, kind of what's hot on the radio for Michael to listen to. And, and that was kind of a Nine Inch Nails era. So Michael totally dug it. He loved the guitars. You know, I think anything with impact and energy is yes. what got him excited. So that's... Morphine is, is maybe as close, you know, as he was going to get to that. Um, I always had a, a dream of Michael working with Trent Reznor, but it was never to be.
0: <laughs> wow. That's... Yeah, I think it was Michael Prince who said in um, the This Is It film special features that he would have loved to have gotten Michael's vocal down on some hard rock stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, Yeah, I can totally, after hearing (laughs) morphine, I can totally picture it. (laughs)
2: Yes, for sure.
1: Michael Jackson, one night only. You've never been this close. Sunday, December 10th at 8 p.m. only on HBO.
0: Hey, this is Taj
2: Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ cast.
0: You're now doing some different things. You're going to be involved in Brad Sundberg's MJU event in Los yes. Angeles this June. That is an exciting prospect. What can fans expect from your involvement in that seminar?
2: I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've kind of made myself available to of just w- whatever you need um you know and and really since um i've kind of taken that attitude since michael passed away um from the from really from the point of of uh where i stopped working with michael and then through his death you know my my career went off in in a different place uh, producing and writing. And, and I honestly always had a dream of coming back to work with Michael as a producer, as a writer, m- you know, more than the initial involvement that I had with him. I'd, I'd always hoped that in some way I could create a song that Michael would hear and I would be the guy that he would call in the next record and say like, you know what, get that guy because I love that <laughs> song. I mean, honestly, there were, there were definitely times where I was working with, you know, Christina Aguilera uh, there's a sore that I did a song that I did with her called soar that i I absolutely was trying to make the biggest, most epic production I could possibly make with the hopes that Michael would hear it one day and go, "Get that guy <laughs> um, so um, that you know that never came about because Michael passed away and and really since then, I've just tried to make myself available um, to seminars and interviews, and to the fans, to make sure that uh, whatever I can remember can can be out there, so that people can hear it, people can understand it. Um, I realize that I have uh, a fairly good memory from that time period. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even I'll get an email once in a while from one of the other musicians on the record, like, "Hey man, do you remember what songs I played guitar on?" <laughs> like, so. Uh, I think for whatever reason, whether it was my youth at the time or because I, it was so new to me and I was so excited and I documented a lot of it, um, I do have a good memory for the events that took place. So I, I just try to make that all available. And, I, and I've told Brad that as well. Like Whatever you need me to do, like you, whatever time you want me, whatever you need me to talk about, I'm there. Just tell me what to do.
0: Oh, it's going to be amazing. I think you're totally right about that level of detail uh, in your memory. Cause I mean, I remember reading some of your posts on the gear Sluts forum like four years ago or something mm-hmm. after, after Michael passed away. I, I just went on this journey of wanting to learn more and more about him in the studio. And sure. uh, yeah, I think the, the gear Sluts forum is, is, I think there's a thread there called something like post here. If you worked on Michael's dangerous album. Yeah. Um, but man, that thread is amazing. And you talk so much at length in there about your work with him. It's like a book. It's like reading a book. You should try put it all out in a book.
2: <laughs> well, I try what, what happened is um when the night Michael died, I was in the studio with a amazing songwriter named Wendy Walbin. Uh she wrote Save the Best for Last for Vanessa and and the host of other big hits. And um we were, you know, of course, working and TV wasn't on, and I started to get Tons of text messages and emails um, saying that Michael had passed away, and and honestly, I was I was working. I was like, I, I have a client in front of me. I really can't process this right now. I can't, you know, deal with it really. Um, so I I continued to work for a few more hours, and then I got in the car, and of course, every radio station was playing just Michael Jackson music, much the way they're playing Prince right now, yeah. and, um, and that's when it really started to hit you know, home. And by the time I got home, I was uh, upset. You know, it finally, it finally hit. I think that happens when you have someone, you know, who passes away where there's a moment of like, it's almost not real. And then and the emotion finally takes over you. And I sat down, not on gear slots, just on my computer. And I, and I, I jotted down as many quick things as I could remember. Um, without any kind of organization, just kind of an overall, like, blah, you know, here kind of a, a mental dump. And then um, that thread started on gear sluts, And that's when I finally that, and that's what I did a little more editing and piecing it together and, and kind of posted that initial. So that was just like a pure emotional memory dump. Like here it all is. And I didn't, at the time didn't know it was ever going to be read by anybody. I just kind of dumped it all out there from my own, uh, you know, grieving process basically. So that's that's kind of where that came from.
0: Well, it it went on to be read by so many people. Um, not just massive amounts of fans, but like um that information on that thread has helped inform so many official books that have come out as well. Oh, that's um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, like if you read Joseph Vogel's Man and the Music, um, you know, so many. Michael Jackson authors and writers have read that, that information on that thread and often talk to me about it. So nice. It's great.
2: I'm glad it could be helpful.
0: (laughs) So other than Brad Sunderberg, are you still in touch with, with other members from team MJ, like Brad Buxer and those guys?
2: Uh, I definitely still speak with Andrew Sheps here and there. Sundberg's, uh, number one on the list. Uh, Steve Procaro here and there. Uh, I, I try to use a lot of the musicians who played on the record in all my productions, basically. It's kind of like the the cast of amazing musicians that I try to get everywhere. <laughs> so Paul Jackson Jr., John Van S. and I speak. You know, thank God for Facebook, basically. Um, yeah. John Van S. and I keep in contact. And John had worked with Michael for a long time as well. You know, Renee Moore over the years. So yeah, c- kind of here and there. We're not as... We're kind of spread out quite a bit, so yeah. you know we don't get to speak as much as possible. But like I said, Facebook is a nice, uh, just easy way for all of us to kind of keep in check.
0: Yeah, I think June's going to be a great time. You'll be uh, interacting again with a lot of those people.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So <laughs> it'll be fun.
0: So you went on as well uh, after Michael to work on a lot of things like TV commercials, trailers, TV, you know, actual television shows and specials and things like that, and video games. Which industry do you sort of prefer to work in, the music industry, on records for artists, or in, you know, film and TV?
2: I try to do as many different things as possible because that's what keeps it interesting. You know, the the TV things are... Less artistic, but they're more constant, um, so that's yep. really nice when when music is is good, when you have the right budget and studio to hire great musicians it's it's awesome. Um, so much music today is done with not great musicians and on terrible budgets so it's <laughs> it's not as much fun um, so I just I try to keep it really varied and really different all the time. this week, I'm mixing a Romanian singer a uh, single like R&B kind of song mixing a bossa nova record with a famous singer from Poland the other day I worked on a kind of folk singer songwriter record and edited a audio for a tv show so really it's it's all over the place every week
0: I had a question here for you about young engineers young aspiring people who uh-huh. work in the studio what's the best advice the, what, what would you give them as advice, somebody up and coming in the industry?
2: Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Bail. You're crazy. Um, I, the same advice I give to almost anybody in every artistic endeavor. If there is something else that you can do well and be happy doing, I would recommend you do it. But if you can't live without music or art or acting or, you know, whatever your creative outlet is, if if that's the single thing that you see doing, and if you don't do it, you'll become a miserable old curmudgeon. Then that's when you should do it. If it's kind of like, this is fun. I think I'll be an engineer. uh, Your, your head's not in the right place. It, it has to be, it has to be like your life. Because it is miserable sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely amazing someday. Like you can literally have an hour of the most amazing music of your life and then six hours of torture. And the money is difficult. The career is difficult. The business aspects are difficult. So it, you literally, you have to love it above all else. Otherwise, it can be just a great fun hobby and that's awesome. But if you really want to do it, it, it has to be your singular focus.
0: One of my last questions that I've got for you is uh, a question we ask every single Michael Jackson collaborator we have on the show. And it's, how do you feel Michael should be remembered? Wow. <laughs> um, hmm.
2: I mean, he's he he was a, a musical genius. I mean, he is at the level of you know, any, any of the great musicians that you could ever think of in your life. I mean, he, he, he's at the level of a of a Count Basie, Frank Sinatra, Mozart, like those. He had that kind of musical mind. And any of the musicians that I speak to now, you know, when they find out I've worked with Michael and they've seen This Is It or something, they're like, even people that were in the business didn't know the level that he was at, you know, his talent and his work ethic and all of those things. And, and they all kind of come back to me and agree. They're like, wow, I just watched this is it. And I had no idea the talent that he was, you know, I always enjoyed his music, but I had no idea who he was and and how involved he was, but he is, he's that kind of guy. I mean, he's that, he's, he's that level of talent, you know, Prince and Michael, um, you know they surpass anybody else out there even even Madonna I'm a huge Madonna fan but she's still not in the ballpark of of what Michael and Prince created um maybe Beyonce you know in our current era maybe she's in that level um but really you know there there is no one else really to compare to
1: um
2: and I would hope that people over time, people that weren't Michael Jackson fans, I hope they become fans and realize really what he created and how involved he was. He wasn't just a singer who got some nice songs to sing from the record company. Like he, he was in it from day one.
0: I think that's a great answer. So how can people find you if uh, fans want to contact you and, and uh, drop you a line or uh, do you have a website they can contact you on or anything like that?
2: Um, I'm on social media. I'm, I'm usually findable. I get lots of, uh, People seem to find me pretty easily. Um, I do, you know, the Facebook stuff and, and I try to uh, be available, um, but I don't jump in on all the big Michael Jackson uh, forums and things like that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it gets political and there are times I can't answer questions that, that people ask. But I, I really do try to be avail- available for people when they email and find me on Facebook. That's, that's always the easiest
0: way. Great. Well, we'll put a couple of links in the show notes to your website. And uh, sure. are, there any, are there any projects or anything you'd want to get the word out about that you're involved in that you want us to link to as well? Or
2: Believe it or not, like the, 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 the focus of my life at this point is uh, Chinese medicine and Chinese culture. <laughs> I've really, in the last five years, I was always a martial artist and um, and as the music industry has kind of really fallen apart I've, I've kind of, that was kind of the other half of my life that, that was always interesting to me. And I've kind of gravitated towards that part of my life. I still, I, now I do music. I choose projects that I have fun with that are, you know, really interesting to me and keep me busy without becoming torturous. And then Chinese medicine and, and Chinese, like Asian studies, Chinese culture is my, my passion at this point. And yeah. that allows me to refuel and, and kind of attack the music projects with a fresh, clean mind. So that, that's really where I'm headed. I, ha- I have a master's degree in Chinese medicine, and I'm about to start a PhD program this fall um, in Chinese medicine, doing some study in China and things like that. So it's, it's a totally different field, uh, but it keeps my mind fresh and, and, like I said, makes music more exciting when I do uh, musical projects.
0: Uh, that's great yeah it <laughs> sounds like we've got a lot in common my wife I tell you what every time I get sick she's she's always trying to give me Chinese medicine I gotta say it's <laughs> the best tasting stuff in the world but whatever the stuff she's trying to get me to have she puts it in these soups and stuff she makes but uh. yeah
2: that's that's the key that's that's what I do actually like I said my wife is having a little bit of tonsillitis uh right now uh yeah after our trip to China since we just got back and I'm Every day, I'm hounding her. Like, have you taken your Chinese herbs? You know, what herbs are you <laughs> taking? What, what can I make you a soup or a tea? Like, I'm I'm constantly hounding her. So, well, yeah,
0: the way the way Lee explains it is that like Western medicine can be effective, but it has it takes its toll because it works so quickly. Whereas Chinese medicine takes a lot longer to impact you, but it's you know completely healthy.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's the way I explain it to my clients and and patients as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, really cool. So, all right. Well, there you go. Listeners, jump on uh, Rob Hoffman's Facebook page, have a look at some of the different things he's talking about around health and Chinese medicine, and uh, drop him a line as well if you want to learn more about his work with Michael Jackson. Well, Rob, I just really want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Uh, And anytime you want to come back on the MJ cast in the future, just let us know and you'll you'll be totally welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a great interview. Really good question. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
0: Is it true that you worked with Prince as well?
2: No, I never worked with him. Um, Oh, okay. He he met with Michael. There There is is rumors and stories about this. We were there. We were in New York. Uh, Again, we were in Studio 3 and 4 of the Hit Factory. And Michael came in one day and he's like, so Prince is coming to the studio today. And we were all like, really? Okay, cool. Like, what's going to happen? Like, is there a possible duet? And he wouldn't give any clue to that. Um, but then he did say, "We're going to meet, you know, in my office, in my lounge, and if we come into the studio, uh, Prince is really private, so I need you guys not to be in here." <laughs> <laughs> oh and we were, we were kind of amazed because here's Michael, who's super private, and you know, obviously was having you know the beginnings of the legal troubles and things like that, and here was Prince coming into Michael's world and asking Michael to clear the studio. It was kind of, it was a very like, we were all like, of course, you know, we're like, of course. Yeah. Whatever you need, Michael, you know, we'll do whatever you say. But it was was definitely an odd moment. Like really Prince wants Michael to clear the room. Like it was just very odd. Um, So I didn't get to meet him that day. I've since, uh, I've got a few friends that have played with him. I've I've gotten to work with uh, Wendy. Um, Andrew Shep's is great friends with Wendy and Lisa, and he worked with them after the Michael years. Um, I got to work with Wendy with Don Was on a Roseanne Cash record. I know Morris Hayes casually as friends, things like that, but I never got to work with Prince.
0: I've been really listening to a lot of his work again over the past you know couple of weeks since everything happened, and wow, what an incredible musician! Just. Just brilliant! His output so consistent. Like I just bought his latest two records that he put out. Uh-huh. Um, amazing, amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's, no, he's just- the kind, it, it felt like he's the kind of artist that was just getting started.
2: Yeah, in a sense. Um, the the only I, I always wish that Prince would have done what Michael did and have collaborators, uh, you know, producers who yeah. who could have, you know been able to like capture his work ethic and creative vibe and channel it more. Cause I've always felt like, like most artists especially, but like Prince always seemed to have like two great records. And then the like, one that wasn't, you know, like up to his standard. And I always felt like, man, if he, if he could find a producer, like a, a co-producer that would sit in the room with him and really hash this stuff out. But apparently from everybody I've spoken to, he worked so fast and so prodigiously that Nobody really was going to keep up with him anyway. (laughs) So it was almost like he had to have that output to get to the great songs, you know, to get... You can't do it every time. It can't be perfect every time, but so few people could keep up with him.
0: I think that was the biggest difference between him and Michael. Like, Michael obviously recorded a lot of material as well but he just chose to put out what he considered to be the very best of the best. Yeah, Whereas Prince put a lot out.
2: <laughs> yeah. Prince just kept going. It's, it's in a sense, it's almost like a country artist. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but like country songwriters, they have writing appointments. They write all day, every day, three appointments a day, and they just keep writing songs. And one of those becomes amazing. You know, it's like, you're just always looking for that one song. And Michael seemed to more cherry pick the ideas and start something and put it away and come back to it. It was a more laborious and maybe even a little more tortured process for him yeah. to find those cherries, um, which he may have learned from Rod Temperton. Rod Temperton has told me, you know, that it would, it takes him up to six months to write some songs. So that that's m-
1: is something Michael learned from him, but I'm not sure. I, I'm just making a supposition. though.